In this episode, we bid farewell to one of the greatest men in Tongan history, the legendary Finau Ulukalala. Siota ofa and welcome to the Tokiukamea podcast. Let's start the show. Let's do a quick recap. Saumailangi, the daughter of Finau Ulukalala, falls ill. She is rushed from temple to temple as her father pleads for her life to the gods. Just as she seemed to be recovering, she unexpectedly passes away. The distraught Finau Ulukalala grieves and declares that her funeral will be done in the Samoan style. And a little mix of his own style. Instead of Tongan funerary attire, they will dress in the fashion of Samoa, wearing tapa and adorned with a kakala, or a flower necklace. The funeral seemed more like a celebration, which ended with a feast and kava, and a wrestling and boxing contest, and even the women were involved, 1,500 on each side, according to Mariner, who also remarked, quote, This was a thing altogether new, beyond all precedent, and quite unexpected at a funeral ceremony. Shortly after, Finau fell ill, and signs point to heart disease. Despite the many prayers to the gods on his behalf, and his baby whose life was sacrificed to the gods, the great warrior chief of Ava'u, Finau Ulukalala, took his last breath and said the word Fonua before he returned to Bulotu. No sooner was the late Hau deceased than all those principal chiefs who had or imagined that they had some claims to the government of Ava'u were expected to take up arms and assert their cause. Among these was Vuna. So let's backtrack because Vuna was mentioned earlier in chapter 5, I believe. Um, so going back several episodes. But Vuna was the original uh, Tuivava'u. And uh, when Finau Ulukalala set his sights on Vava'u after um, being in Tongatapu and uh, remember the incident with the four in Nuku'alofa and that's where Tupou Malohi, he was the one that was, uh, you know, built, he was the one that built and was pretty much uh, over that fort. And now, uh, you know, we learn a couple episodes ago, he is now in Ha'apai, okay, living under the protection of uh, Tupou To'a. And so when they got word that uh, Finau Ulukalala was making his way to Vava'u, um, his son, so this is Finau Ulukalala's son, and his name was also Finau. Finau Ulukalala Moengangongo, to be exact. Mariner in this chapter just calls him the prince. I don't know why, because, well, in chapter 5, he says, he refers to the word Moengangongo as uncouth. And so I had to do a little research on that, and I kind of suspected that this is really uh, not a Tongan name, and I was right. So after a little research, I just typed in Moenga Ngongo, but without the N-G, because you know how we spell the G sound or the Nga sound with a 
with a ng but in samoa it is spelled with just a g and so i typed this in because i know uh, moenga or mohenga means bed and ngongo the only way or the only time i've heard ngongo or nono is um you know the dance group nonosina and um hey shout out to uh my nonosina family but that's the only context in which i've heard that word ngongo or nono and then to have them together um mohenga meaning bed or moenga is in samoan right and so i don't know what um mariner is alluding to and this isn't a common Tongan word, and in just doing some research online, Moengango is actually a title in Samoa. And so any of my Samoan friends who would know a little bit more about this, please enlighten me and let me know. And it only makes sense that Finau Ulukalala, uh, Moengangongo or Finau San, would have this title because he spent a considerable amount of time in Samoa. And if you remember in chapter 5, he returned to Vava'u with Vuna, but also returned with his Samoan wives. And he came with like a whole crew of Samoans. And so it makes sense to me that uh, Samoan culture was also uh, practiced in Vava'u. There is a um, history, a documented history of exchanges between the people of Ava'u and Samoa, exchanges of like, you know, fineries, like uh, fine mats and things like that. And uh, Fina Ulukalala obviously had a taste for Samoan things. It's what he preferred. And so it is, uh, to me, I feel it's very evident that Samoan culture and Samoan people was very much a part of Tongan life back in those days. So let's continue with the book because now we are at um, the point where there's an issue of deciding succession, right? And some of this I, I read uh, in the last episode, but I'll just read a little bit of it so that we can uh, lead into uh, the rest of the chapter for this episode. Now, Vuna was the third Tu'ivava'u. Uh, um, oh, and I want to mention in the Google reading, um, so all the papers that I've shared with you in the Google Share Drive, I had just um, dropped a new file in there. Uh, which will kind of recap everything for you leading up to this point because there's like so much to cover that if I was to go back and recap all of this, it could take up the rest of this episode. So go to um, look for, it's a PDF called Strategic Murders, Social Drama in Tonga's Chiefly System. And this will get you caught up with everything that have, that has happened up to this point. Now, Vuna could have made a case for the title, um, and, uh, you know, to be the ruler of Ava'u because he definitely has like the pedigree and the history and also the reputation of a great warrior. The other one is Tupoto'a who was in Ha'apai and was pretty much, you know, the caretaker of Ha'apai on behalf of Finau Ulukalala. The other one was Finau Fisi, which is Finau Ulukalala's brother. And he has a greater claim than either one of the, of the two uh, previously mentioned. Mariner says, a third chief was Finau Fisi, the late Howe's brother, who perhaps had a greater claim than either one of the two before mentioned. On account of his relationship, he was also a brave warrior and considered to be a man of great prudence and wisdom. But some it was not supposed that he would lay any claim, for although he was a brave warrior, when occasions called forth his courage, he was still a very peaceable man, remarkable for sage counsel and for strong aversion to every kind of conspiracy or disturbance whatsoever. It was the prince and his party who entertained this high idea of his moderation. 
Two other chiefs and their dependents thought otherwise of Finau Fisi and expected he would prove a very powerful claimant. Finau originally had two brothers, Finau Fisi and Duponiwa, but by different wives. Finau's lengthened name was Finau Ulukalala. The proper family name is Finau, but no member of the royal family is allowed to assume the family name till his appointment to the sovereignty unless his father chooses to give him as sort of a first name to which his own proper name is attached, as was the case with Finau's brother, who was called Finau Fisi. Apprehensions were also entertained respecting the young chief Vuki, who assisted in strangling the child, for though it was not supposed he would lay claim to the sovereignty, yet being known to be strongly in the interest of Tupoto'a, his conduct required to be strictly watched. These were the chiefs whose behavior at this moment the young prince had to notice with a watchful eye. He had considerable confidence, however, in the sincerity of his uncle. Tupoto'a was at the Ha'apai Islands. Vuna and Vuki, therefore, were the two whose design he had most immediately to be apprehensive of. Such was the state of political affairs at the time of Finau's death. As soon as his body was deposited on the bales of Ngatu, as before mentioned, one of his daughters, a beautiful girl of about 15, who stood by at the time, went almost frantic with excess of sorrow. The expressions of her grief were at first in loud and frequent screams, or in broken exclamations. O Yahweh si Oktamai, O Yahweh! Alas, O my father, alas! Her sorrow was so great that at times she appeared quite bereft of reason, and her truly pathetic expressions of it, joined to those of the other widows and female attendants of the late king, all beating their breasts and screaming from time to time, rendered the house truly a house of mourning beyond the power of the imagination to picture. The place was lighted up at night by lamps with coconut oil used only on such occasions, presenting a scene, if possible, still more affecting than that which happened on the occasion of Tuponiwa's death. In the course of the night, I went into the house several times, partly out of curiosity indeed, but principally moved by the feelings of regret for the loss of my great and kind patron. For though I could not in every point of view admire him as a man, yet I could not but esteem him and reverence him as a benefactor. I had received from him great and numerous favors, and notwithstanding his faults, there was something essential in his character which commanded respect, and I felt that, in losing him, I had sustained a very great loss. The prince checked on me in these frequent visits to the house, urging that as I was a man, I ought to feel as a man and not mingle my sorrows with those of women, but if I had wished to express my love for Finau, who had adopted me as his son, and had given me the name of a son whom he had lost some years before, I should demonstrate that love and respect for the memory of so good a father by engaging my attentions in the interests of his family, particularly in those of himself who was his lawful heir, and not show my affliction by a silly profusion of tears and sighs which was beneath the exalted character of a warrior. Ha <laughs> ha! Well, hmm, it's okay, uh... 
Mariner, it's okay to cry. Now, I don't know if we've talked about this before. We may have, and I just forgot. But um, Finao Ulukalala had a son named Toki Ukamea, which literally translates to Iron Axe. And he died when he was an infant. And so uh, that name uh, was given to Mariner when um, Finao Ulukalala took him under his care. Mariner writes, The name of Finao's son was Toki Ukamea, Iron Axe, and was also the name of one of the gods of the sea. As they only obtain iron axes from across the sea, they naturally attribute the advantages which they possess. In having such a useful instrument to the bounty of a sea god whom they have accordingly designated by this name. Finau's son, who so called, was a great favorite of his father, who when he adopted me gave me the same name as proof of his real esteem. I always went by this name or for shortness sake Doki. About the middle of the night, no actual disturbance had taken place, but some of the prince's confidants, who were dispersed about to be on the watch, brought intelligence that Vuna was holding secret conferences with some of the natives of Ava'u. The prince, however, thought it advisable not to take any active measures, nor to appear to notice it. He therefore merely ordered his spies to keep a strict eye upon their proceedings, and to obtain all further information they well could, without incurring suspicion. At the same time, he resolved in his own mind, as soon as the consent of the people should establish his authority, to banish all suspicious chiefs to the Hapai Islands. About an hour afterwards, he learned that Vuki, the preceding day, had ordered sundry parties of his men to post themselves behind the bushes on each side of the road to New Lolo, during the time that Finau's body was being carried there with orders to rush out and kill all who accompanied the body in case a fit opportunity presented itself. No such opportunity having offered, his men had assembled armed along with him at a house near the waterside with his canoe close at hand and had been there all the preceding part of the night. The prince ordered that no notice should be taken of his hostile position, but that all his men should keep themselves well armed and in perfect readiness to meet the enemy in case of a revolt. He also dispatched men to watch as narrowly as possible other chiefs, whom he began to think might be connected with Vuki. During the remainder of the night, no disturbance took place. In the morning, as soon as it was light, the people began to assemble on the Malae, out of respect to the departed chief, and sat on the ground waiting for the commencement of the ceremonies usual on such extraordinary occasions. In the meantime, the prince and his uncle Finau Fisi prepared Kava at a neighboring house and presented it there to the priest of Dupototai, out of respect to that god who has now become the tutelar deity of the young prince. By the mouth of his priest, the god desired him not to fear rebellion, for who should dare to rebel against a chief who was the peculiar care of the powers of Bulotu? He commanded him, moreover, to reflect on the circumstances of his father's death, as a salutary lesson to himself. Your father, said the god, is now no more. But why did he die? He died because he was disrespectful to the gods. The conference here ended. A short time after, the prince, while reflecting on the words of the oracle, was addressed by a woman who was sitting behind him in waiting, and who was much respected by the late king and his family, on account of her giving him some information respecting a real or supposed conspiracy 
on the part of the Vava'u chiefs. Ah, so this lady was the informant um, who snitched on Pupunu and Kakahu and all of those that were uh, put to death in the leaky canoes. I guess you could say that Tonga had Karens back then. This woman remarked to the prince that his father, just before he was taken ill, had sent two men to her to procure a rope, she having the care of the storehouse, with orders to bring it to him secretly. These two men, whose names were Tuuhengi and Popoto, the former a son of Tupopuku, a priest, the latter a cook, happening now to be present, and the prince turned to them and asked if they knew the purpose for which his father wanted this rope, whom he meant to bind with it. Hearing this question, I, who was sitting close to him, exclaimed, What? Did you not know that he intended to bind and afterwards kill Tupotea, the priest of Tupototai, to be revenged on this god for not bringing about his daughter's recovery? This intention of the king had only been cautiously whispered about among a few chiefs and Matapule that were constantly with him and his sudden sickness and speedy death which prevented him putting his threats into execution had so occupied everybody's thoughts that the circumstance for a time was forgotten. This fact was afterwards confirmed by other persons and particularly by certain warriors who had actually received orders to seize Tupotea and murder him. Thus was a plan of sacrilege wickedness brought to light which made all those who now heard of it for the first time shudder at the mere thought. No wonder, no wonder that he died, a chief with such dreadful thoughts. I then stated in addition that I heard the king say more than once, and a few days before he died, how unmindful are the gods of my welfare. But no, it is not the decree of the gods in general. It is to that vexatious Dupotai that I owe my misfortunes. He does not exert himself for my good, but wait a little, I'll be revenged, and his priest shall not live long. Finau had often stated to me his doubts that they were such beings as the gods. He thought that men were fools to believe what the priest told him. I expressed my wonder that he should doubt their existence when he acknowledged that he had more than once felt himself inspired by the spirit of Mumui, a former Hau of Tonga. True, the king replied, there may be gods, but what the priests tell us about the gods I believe to be false. Wait, is anyone surprised by that, aside from Finau Urukalala-san? Because it's been pretty clear throughout the book that he, Finau Urukalala, was more of an agnostic than anything. And thankfully, we have things like science and modern medicine that can help us to identify, you know, what some of these um, diseases or illnesses that he was going through. So he had a heart attack. He had coronary issues. There have been... Um, reports from other European explorers that met him that described him as obese so it's very plausible that he did have a heart attack and that it was not some act by the gods to take his life it kind of reminds me of when um, when I was a student in um, Tonga in like their version of elementary school or what we called GPS back then but one of my teachers um, you know she took some time off of school and um, you know we just found out that she was or we were told that she was ill and then we come to find out from just um, gossip you know around town that that she was visited by a spirit who um, 
slapped her in the face and so like half of her face was paralyzed and so eventually she came back to school and she still you know had some signs that there was um some kind of paralysis on her face and then i come to learn about bell's palsy and i think about just the way she uh, exhibited you know the symptoms and what i observed remember observing as a kid and she really just had bell's palsy i definitely can relate to Fina Ulukalala's experience as someone who is suspicious and maybe agnostic towards um, religious type institutions. All right, let's continue with the book. Um, the prince and his uncle, Finau Fisi, next held a consultation together respecting their mode of conduct, particularly in regard to certain chiefs who were suspected of not being well disposed towards their family. Finau Fisi, for his own part, said that he had no other wish than to coincide in whatever should seem likely to establish the peace and welfare of Ha'afuluhau, the name given to Wava'u and all its neighboring islands, taken collectively. Let's pause and talk about that. So Ha'afuluhau is one of the, what they um, call in Tonga, a hingoa fratenetene, which means it's a name, it's like a poetic name for a village or for an island. And so Ha'afuluhau is one of those names that uh, Wava'u was known by, um, the island of Koloa, where I come from also, is uh, called by this name as well. Interestingly, there is a Samoan connection to this name, Sa-Fulu-Sao. And so this is just another uh, evidence, uh, this is more evidence of um, Tongan connections with Samoa during that time, and specifically Vava'u, because Vava'u is closer to Samoa. I also have a theory about this name. So in Samoan, it literally translates to... Well, let's break it up. Sa meaning sacred, fulu meaning hair, or it could refer to pubic hair. And then uh, sao means protected. In Tongan, we say how. And um, I think this refers to, so this is just my theory. Um, and especially thinking about uh, my village of Goloa is connected to Maui, specifically Maui Atalanga. Uh, because there's several Mauis in uh, Tongan lore. But Maui Atalanga, his home was in Koloa, and Koloa is where he, um, you know, the uh, the story about Maui bringing fire from the realm of the gods to to earth, um, this is believed to have taken place in Koloa. Anyway, there's a lot of lore about Maui in Koloa, and at one time there was even a temple that was um, dedicated to Maui in Koloa, and it's no longer there. But interestingly, um, when you think about the name uh, Ha'afuluhau, and then you think about its Samoan origins, and this name was um, referring to a, um, a group of women who were virgins, and um, they were brought over to Tonga from Samoa. And so that's where the, whole, the name carries over from Samoa to Vava'u. And I believe that these women uh, were in Koloa, brought over from Samoa because they were, I don't know if priestess is the right word, but I believe they were um, women who were dedicated to the temple of Maui. And so that's why they were brought over from Samoa to Koloa. So these were virgin women from Samoa who were, I don't know, caretakers or priestesses. I don't know what the right word would be, but this is just my theory of um, the word Hafuluhau uh, being applied to Wava'u, but also to the specific village where my family comes from. 
And I would even go further, and I suspect that these women were um, probably priestesses of Hina. And so that's why they were in Vavau and in Koloa specifically, because there was a shrine or a temple there to Maui. And we know that Maui and Hina are always paired together. And um, Professor Tevitakaili talks about this a lot. So um, he was one of our guests in an earlier episode, but check out his work on this. Anyway, let's continue with the book. So Finao Fisi's advice to... Um, to the prince is that uh, they should pursue peace a peace policy continuing on and that the only method of doing this would be to send all those chiefs who pretended to have a right to the sovereignty or who were suspected of such pretensions away to the Hapai islands as to his nephew he said that there could not well arise any dispute to his right of succession except on the part of ill-disposed chiefs inasmuch as as he was the late king's heir and was well beloved by the Vava'u people on account of his having been the adopted son of the late Boniwa and also because he was born in Vava'u and brought up there. The prince agreed with his uncle on the propriety of sending the pretenders to the Hapai Islands, particularly Vuna, who was of the line of those chiefs who governed Vava'u before the revolt of Tongatapu and also Vuki, who was at the head of a strong party of men and was known to be in the interest of the Botoa. The prince concluded by saying, But let us wait as quietly as possible till the burial of my father, and then we shall have a different scene in the affairs of Avau. When all the promoters of civil discord are banished, the earth shall be cultivated and shall appear again flourishing, for we have had enough war. To which everybody present replied, This we all wish for. So, after all that, Finao Ulukalala Moengangongo, who is the son of Finao Ulukalala, and with the advice of his uncle Finao Fisi, they decide they're going to pursue peace, they're going to isolate themselves from the rest of Tonga, and they're going to let Tupoto'a keep Ha'apai. Moenga Ngongo had no intention of waging a new war and shedding more blood for the mere purpose of obliging him to continue that tribute as heretofore. So he was willing to just cut off the tributes um, and just uh, they were going to go at it alone and focusing all their energies on rebuilding Vavau. The conference being ended, the two chiefs turned their attention to the removal of the body of the late Hau to Feletoa to be buried, as there were no Faitoka and Neyafu, but such as belonged to the family of the Tuitonga, and it would have been contrary to custom to have buried an individual of the Hau's family in a grave to that of the Tuitonga. So even though the power of the Tuitonga was uh, starting to wane during this period and actually wouldn't last much longer than after, um, you know, Mariner went back to England and everything here. At this point in the book, it, um, you know, everything is starting to settle in Tonga. Um, the Tuitonga, I believe, only lasted maybe two more um, generations. And even so... Um, their position in Tongan culture was still upheld in high regards as that being a um, 
sacred ruler. All the chiefs in Matapule were now assembled on the Malae at Neyafu. Among the rest was Vuna, to whom the prince went up and intimated the necessity of removing the body of his father to Feletoa. It would have been thought very disrespectful if he had not mentioned this to Vuna before he issued orders respecting it, because Vuna was a very great chief, even greater than Finau himself, and such a reserve on such public occasion towards a superior would have been an act offensive to the gods. It may appear strange that Vuna was a greater chief than the son of the king, yet it is a frequent occurrence that the king is chosen from a family not of the highest rank on the account of his superior wisdom or military skill. And this was the case with the present royal family, so that the king is often obliged to pay a certain ceremonious respect hereafter to be noticed towards many other chiefs, even little children, who are greater nobles than he. The company were now all seated, habited in mats, waiting for the body of the deceased king to be brought forth. The mourners, who are always women, consisting of the female relations, widows, mistresses, and servants of the deceased, and such other females of rank, who choose out of respect to officiate on such occasion, were assembled in the house and seated around the corpse, which still lay out on the bells of Ngatu. They were all habited in large, old, ragged mats, the more ragged, the more fit for the occasion, as being more emblematic of a spirit broken down, or, as it were, torn to pieces by grief. Their appearance was calculated to excite pity and sorrow in the heart of anyone, whether accustomed or not to such a scene. Their eyes were swollen with last night's frequent flood of grief, and still weeping genuine tears of regret. The upper part of their cheeks perfectly black and swollen so that they could hardly see. With the constant blows they had inflicted on themselves with their fists, and their breasts also were equally bruised with their own misplaced and untimely rage. Among the chiefs of Mataapules who were still at the Malae, all those who were particularly attached to the late king or to his cause evinced their sorrow by a conduct, usually indeed amongst these people at the death of a relation or of a great chief, unless it be that of the Tuitonga or any of his family but which to us may well appear barbarous to the extreme. That is to say, the custom of cutting and wounding themselves with clubs, stones, knives, or sharp shells, one at a time or two or three altogether, running into the middle of the circle formed by the spectators to give these proofs of their extreme sorrow for the death and great respect for the memory of their departed friend. The sentiments expressed by these victims of popular superstition were to the following purpose. Finau, I know well your mind. You have departed to Pulotu and left your people under suspicion that I or some of those about you were unfaithful. But where is a proof of infidelity? Where is a single instance of disrespect? Then inflicting violent blows and deep cuts in the head with a club or stone or a knife would again exclaim at intervals, is this not proof of my fidelity? Does this not evince loyalty and attachment to the memory of the departed warrior? Then perhaps two or three would run up and endeavor to seize the same club, saying with a furious tone of voice, Behold, the land is torn with strife. It is smitten to pieces. It is split by revolts, and how my blood boils. Let us haste and die. I no longer wish to live. 
Your death fee now shall be mine. But why did I wish hitherto to live? It was for you alone. It was in your service and defense only that I wished to breathe. But now, alas, the country is ruined. Peace and happiness are at an end. Your death has ensured ours. Henceforth, war and destruction alone can prosper. These speeches were accompanied with a wild and frantic agitation of the body, while the parties cut and bruised their heads every two or three words with a knife or a club they held in their hands. Others, somewhat more calm and moderate in their grief, would parade up and down with rather a wild and agitated step, spinning and whirling the club about, striking themselves with the edge two or three times violently upon the back or on top of the head. They would understand tolerably well how to avoid the situation of the larger arteries, and then suddenly stopping and looking steadfastly at the instrument, spattered with blood, exclaim, Alas, my club! Who could have said that you would have done this kind office for me and have enabled me thus to evince a testimony of my respect for Finau? Never, no, never. Can you again tear open the brains of his enemies? Alas, what a great and mighty warrior who has fallen. O Finau, cease to suspect my loyalty. Be convinced of my fidelity. But what absurdity am I talking? If I had appeared treacherous in your sight, I should have met the fate of those numerous warriors who have fallen victims to your revenge. Do not think, Finau, that I reproach you. No, I wish only to convince you of my innocence, for who that has thoughts of harming his chiefs shall grow white-headed like me. Okay, and it goes on and on. I'm not going to read any more of this because, I mean, it's some uh, performative bullcrap. I mean, um, they talk about women in here mourning and in a way almost making it sound like their mourning is like this frivolous activity that women do. And even Mariner getting um, chastised by Fina Urukala's son for wanting to go to where the women were gathered and, you know, cry with them or whatever. I would rather do that than sit through all of this performative bullshit. Even if I'm, you know, Mariner's translating it into English I'm sure that this sounds so much better and much more poetic in Tongan, but I still wouldn't sit through all that. Such were their sentiments and conduct on this mournful occasion. Some more violent than others cut their head to the skull with such a strong and frequent blows that they cause themselves to reel, producing afterwards a temporary loss of reason. It is difficult to say to what length this extravagance would have been carried particularly by one old man, if the prince had not ordered me to go up and take the club away from him, as well as two others that were engaged at the same time. It is customary on such occasions when a man takes a club for another to use it himself in the same way about his own head, but I, being a foreigner, was not expected to do this. I therefore went up and, after some hesitation and struggle, secured the club one after another and returned with them to my seat, when after a while they were taken by others who used them in a like manner. After these savage expressions of sorrow had been continued for nearly three hours, the prince having first signified his intentions to Vuna, for reasons before stated, gave orders that the body of his father should be taken to Feretoa to be buried. In the first place, a bale of Ngatu was put on a kind of hurdle, and the body laid on the bale. The prince then ordered that, as his father was the first who introduced guns in the wars of Tonga, 
the two carronades should be loaded and fired twice before the procession set out, and twice after it had passed out of the Malae. The young prince had now in his possession only two carronades, the other two being at Ha'apai with Tupotoa. But then Tupotoa had only half a barrel of gunpowder and no iron shot, whereas the prince had seven or eight barrels and a considerable number of balls. He gave directions also that the body of Finau's daughter, lately deceased, Saumai Langi that we talked about in the last episode, should be taken out of the Faitoka in the model of a canoe and carried after the body of her father, that during his life, as he had wished always to have her body in his neighborhood, she might now at length be buried with him. Matters being thus arranged, I loaded the guns and fired four times with blank cartridges. The procession then went forward. The wives of the deceased and the women attendants proceeded first in silent sorrow. Next followed the body of Finau, the body of his daughter, the Mataapule, or should I say Kaumataapule, and lastly the young prince and his retinue. When the procession had gone out of the fortress, the Malae of which we are speaking being in the middle of the fortress of Neafu, and had passed the place where the guns were drawn, I fired two more rounds, then loaded them with canister shot, lighted up a match to keep in readiness in case of need, and ordered the guns to follow the procession, while I went last to see that they were properly drawn. It was not the prince's intention to order another salute, but he had previously told me to load them again, not with a blank cartridge but with shot, and to carry a lighted match in my hand, for perhaps, said he, we may have need of this. This, it may easily be seen, was a measure of policy. He ordered them to be fired, that he might have a plea for carrying them in the procession along with him, and he ordered them to be loaded a third time, as if they were to be in readiness for another salute at the grave, but in fact for his own safeguard, lest certain chiefs should take the opportunity to revolt. In the course of two hours, we arrived at Feretoa, where the body was laid in a house on the Malae at some distance from the grave, till another and smaller house could be brought close to it. The body is always placed in a house in front of the Faitoka, during the time the grave is dug. If there be no house near, a small one is immediately brought for the purpose, which from the construction of their houses is readily done by the aid of 50 to 60 men. This was done in the course of an hour, the corner post being taken up, the four pieces which compose the building, a kind of shed in a pyramidal form, that eaves reaching within four feet of the ground were brought by a sufficient number of men and put together at the palace where it was wanted. This being done, the body was brought on the same hurdle or hand barrow to the nearly erected building, and then being taken off the hurdle, it was laid within on a bell of ngatu, and the house was hung around with black ngatu reaching from the eaves to the ground. This black ngatu, or rather ngatu of a dark color, having a deep brown ground with black stripes, is not chosen on account of its color, but because it is coarse and common, emblematical of poverty and sadness. They have a kind of ngatu of very superior quality, but of the same color and pattern, and this is used on the occasions of rejoicing. The women who were now assembled and seated around the body began a most dismal lamentation, similar to that at Neafu. In the meantime, a number of people whose business it is to prepare graves were digging the place of interment within the Faitoka, under the direction of Lawaki, a Matapule, whose office is to superintend such affairs. 
Having dug about 10 feet, they came to a large stone vault. A rope being then fastened double round one end of the stone, which always remains a little raised for this purpose, by means of certain bodies placed underneath. It was by the main strength of 150 or 200 men, pulling at the two ends of the rope towards the opposite edge of the grave, till it was brought up on end, the body being oiled with sandalwood oil and then wrapped in Samoan mats, was handed down on a large belongatu into the grave. The belongatu was then, as it is customary, taken, taken by the before-mentioned matapule as his perquisite, basically his payment. Next, the body of his daughter in the model of the canoe was let down in a similar manner and placed by his side. This grave, which was considered a large one, is capacious enough to hold 30 bodies. Two bodies which I saw in there and which were in a very dry but perfect state had been buried, as I was told by two old men when they were boys, and consequently must have been there upwards of 40 years while several others, of which nothing remained but the bones, had not been buried so long. This circumstance the natives supposed to be owing to different kinds of constitution, though in all probability to the kind of length of disease of which they died. The great stone was then lowered down with a loud shout. Immediately, certain matapule and warriors ran like men frantic, round about the faitoka and exclaiming, Alas, how great is our loss! Finau, you are departed. Witness this proof of our love and loyalty. Oh, gosh, here we go again. And then they cut themselves. They hit themselves with their clubs and knives or whatever. Oh, these drama queens. So Finau Ulukalala's body has been lowered into his grave. And now they're ready to do the next part of the funeral. And this is something I don't see practiced in Tongan culture anymore. And I don't know if there's a name uh, to this ritual. So if anyone knows, please let me know. Um, but let's pick up from where we left off. The whole company now formed themselves into a single line. The women first and afterwards the men. But without any particular order as to rank. And proceeded towards Liku or the back of the island as they term it, because there is no opening for large canoes for the purpose of getting a quantity of sand in small baskets for the use directly to be described. The guns were not, however, taken in the procession as the young prince considered the measure now unnecessary, everything appearing perfectly quiet, for if any party had intended to revolt, they would have done it on their way from Neafu to the grave while they had clubs and spears in their possession, and not during the ceremony of burial, before which every man, according to custom, deposits his arms in the neighboring houses. It is true that they might afterwards have taken up arms again and planned mischief, but the prince, who had always had his spies about, neither perceiving nor hearing of any symptoms of disturbance, did not wish to be seen fearful of revolt, which would have been the case had he had taken the guns with him back to the islands, and which he could not have done without any plausible pretense, such as he had for carrying them to Feletoa. In the road to the back of the island, they sang loudly the whole way, as a signal to all who might be in the road or adjacent fields to hide themselves as quickly as possible, for it is sacrilegious for anybody to be seen abroad by the procession during this part of the ceremony. 
and if any man had unfortunately made his appearance, he would have undoubtedly have been pursued by one of the party and soon dispatched with a club. So strictly is this attended to that nobody recollected a breach of the law so well known. Even if a common man was to be buried and Finau himself was to be upon the road or in the neighborhood of the procession, while going to get sand at the back of the island, he would immediately hide himself. Not that they would knock out the king's brains on such an occasion, but it would be thought sacrilegious and unlucky, the gods of Pulotu being supposed to be present at the time. The chiefs are particularly careful not to infringe upon sacred laws, lest they should set an example of disobedience to the people. The song on this occasion, which is very short, is sung first by the men and then by the women, and so on alternately, and intimates that the fala is coming and that everyone must get out of the way. The fala is the sand for making a mound over the grave, which is the name of this part of the ceremony. Oh, okay, there's the name, the fala. When they arrived at the back of the island, where anybody may be present to see them, and on this occasion, it was at the part called Mofue, everyone proceeded to make a small basket of the leaves of the coconut tree, holding about two quarts, and to fill it with sand. This being done, each of the men carried two upon a stick across the shoulder, one at each end, while the women only carried one, pressed in general against the left hip, or rather upon it, by the hand of the same side and supported by the hand of the opposite side, brought backwards across the loins which they consider the easiest mode for women to carry small burdens. This mode which the women use is called fafa. That which the men use is just as described, amo, carrying it in the hand by the side, takitaki, while the general term for any mode of carrying is fua, then they proceeded back the same way and with the same ceremony to the grave. By this time the grave above the vault was nearly filled with the earth lately dug out, the remaining space being left to be filled up by the sand, which is always more than enough for this purpose, that the amount of which the Faitoka consists may be strewed in like manner, it being considered a great embellishment to a grave to have it thus covered, and it is thought to appear very well from a distance, where the clean sand may be seen on the outside of the Faitoka. Besides which, it is the custom, and nobody can explain the reason why, which is the case with several of their customs. This being done, the temporary house is taken to pieces, and thrown behind the Faitoka in the hole, out of which the earth was originally dug to raise the mound on which the Faitoka stands. In this hole also are thrown all the baskets in which the sand was brought, as well as the remaining quantity of earth not used in filling up the grave. The ground within the Faitoka is now covered with mats, similar to what are commonly used in the houses, and which are made of the leaves of the coconut tree. During the whole of this time, the company was seated on the green before the Faitoka, still clothed in mats and their necks strung with the leaves of the Ifi tree. After this, they arose and went to their respective habitations, where they shaved their heads and burnt their cheeks with a small lighted roll of tapa. Tapa differs from ngatu merely by its not being stamped or imprinted with any pattern, and by applying it once upon each cheekbone, after which the place was rubbed with the astringent berry of the masi, which occasions it to bleed, and with the blood they smeared about the wound in a circular form to about two inches in diameter, giving themselves a very unseemly appearance. 
They repeat this friction with a berry every day, making the wound bleed afresh, and the men in the meantime neglect to shave and to oil themselves during the day. They do, however, at night for the comfort which this operation affords. After having in the first place burnt their cheeks and shaved their heads, they built for themselves small temporary huts for their own accommodation during the time of mourning, which lasts 20 days. Those whose love for the deceased is very great or who wish it to be thought so, instead of burning their cheeks in the way mentioned, rubbed off the cuticle by beating and rubbing their cheeks with plate wound round their hands made of the husk of the coconut, and this is the most painful operation. The women who have become tabooed by touching the dead body remain constantly in the faitoka except when they want food, for which they retire to one of these temporary houses to be fed as mentioned, but they sleep in the faitoka. The provisions with which these tabooed women and mourners in general are provided were sent, on this occasion with bells of Ngatu, first to the young prince by the different chiefs and matapules, the prince then ordered the greater part of them to be sent to the tabooed women, and they were accordingly carried and placed on the ground at some distance from the grave or else lay down before the temporary house, to which the chief of the tabooed women retires to be fed. And she orders them to be distributed to different chiefs and matapule, who again share them out in the usual way. The fifth and tenth day of such a ceremony, however, marked by a greater quantity of provision than ordinary being sent, for which they give no reason but that of custom. On the twentieth day, there is also an unusual large quantity sent, and this is by way of finishing the funeral ceremony. With these provisions, they also send every day a supply of tome. The tome is a sort of torch to light up the faitoka during the night. These tomes are held by a woman who, when fatigued with this office, is relieved by another. Those who take the light into their charge are of lower rank. They, as well as the others, when not oppressed by sleep, in general, spend their time in talking upon indifferent subjects. During these twenty days also, if anyone passes the faitoka, he must not proceed in his ordinary careless way, swinging his arms, but with a slow pace, his head bowed down, and his head clasped before him. If he had no burden, and if he have, he must lower it from his shoulder, for instance, and carry it in his hands or upon his bended arms. But if he can conveniently do it, he will go a circuitous route to avoid the grave. Here it may be observed that on all occasions when a man with a burden passes a great chief, or the grave of a great chief, particularly if there is anyone near to see him, he lowers his burden out of respect. Every day also, one or more approach and sit before the grave for two or three hours, beating their faces with their fists or bruising their heads with clubs, in which the latter case they stand up. Finau's chief widow, Moonga Otupo, every morning attended by her women, cut the grass short before the grave with knives and sharp shells, sweeping away leaves and loose blades with brooms made of the stem of the coconut leaf. They also procured sweet-scented plants, principally the siale or the tiare, gardenia, and planted them before the grave. These are the uniform and essential circumstance which always take place during this part of the bearing of chiefs. And there it is. That is the end of the chapter. And Finau Urukalala is buried. He's been put into ground. 
and he gets his send off his warriors all go crazy for him all the women are mourning him and uh, his successor his son Finau Ulukalala Moengangongo and and getting advice from his very wise uncle Finau Fisi are getting ready to form their new government and that is what we will talk about in the next episode so I just want to thank you all for tuning in um, s- learn so much from this episode uh, specifically about some of our um, funeral customs especially the fala ceremony if that's what they call it where they get sand from uh, liku and they bring it over to um, the burial site but um when this is going on if you are someone who just happens to come across this ceremony when it's being conducted you are supposed to just kind of like hide yourself um, because the penalty if you don't do that is death so i can definitely understand if we don't practice this anymore um, after christianity um, or if we have a variation of it i mean the graves in tonga are buried you know, when they're buried, there is a mound of white sand on it. So, uh, yes, there is evidence that we still practice this um, tradition, but very modified, right? And I don't know about all of you, and I mentioned this in the last episode, but I really think Fina Ulukalala is really the true star of this whole saga. And I'm very sad, actually, to, you know, arrive at this part of the book where he passes away but at the same time, very grateful that Mariner was there to witness all of this. Imagine being um, raised by the person who like slaughtered your entire crew and finding some way to live through all that, to fight from day to day, to just survive under those conditions and to provide us just a different perspective on Finau Ulukalala, who to many was like a jerk, right? I mean, a total asshole. But through Mariner, we see a softer side of him. And not just Finau Ulukalala, but seeing, you know, our culture from such a multi-dimensional perspective. Because, you know, all we hear about our Tongan culture, specifically back in those days, is that we were heathens, we were savages. And yes, there are some acts Uh, that are detailed in this book uh, some of our customs that are definitely uh, you know I'm glad that we no longer practice that anymore but to see that our culture and our people at the time was very complex and even in some aspects very sophisticated much more than uh, western or Balangi culture these are all the things I really appreciate about Mariner's account and why I just totally love this book. So anyway, I'm going to wrap up this episode right here. And I want to thank you all again for listening. See Otto Ofa, and we will see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.